Welcome to A Better Story Podcast. It's good to be back with you. Uh, Up top, before we get into it, a couple announcements. First one, you may have noticed that uh, episodes have kind of been coming in fits and starts, like chunks of four to six, and then a few weeks off. Uh, That's just because of like pace of life and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, So to sort of try to pace things out a little bit, I'm now going to release an episode every other week. So hopefully that'll mean episodes will come out on a regular basis. We'll all take chunks of time off uh, and you'll still get thoughtful, hopefully relatively articulate content every other week. Second thing, last week was a book release for friend of the podcast, Cindy Wong Brandt, her book Parenting Forward. Cindy was a guest uh, just a couple months ago. We talked about Parenting Forward parenting from a more open-minded faith perspective. And so if you enjoyed that conversation, you should absolutely check out her book, Parenting Forward. And last thing, uh, just something to look forward to. In two weeks, I have an interview that I am ridiculously excited about for you to hear with the one and only Barbara Brown Taylor. Uh, Just had that conversation this morning, and it is so worth your while. And so look forward to that. Uh, If you don't know Barbara Brown Taylor, I'll tell you more about her in two weeks, but she is fantastic. All right, though, today uh, we've got actually a series of old stories for you. But before we get into those, let me give you kind of the backstory of how this episode came together. So I was uh, a couple weeks ago invited to preach at a large evangelical organization during their midweek chapel service. And I was asked to preach and somehow tie in uh, some of the anti-racism work that I've done, which I haven't mentioned a ton on this podcast, but I've done that in various settings. Uh, Had about 30 minutes, a mostly evangelical audience, a lot of white people. And so I was like, I have no idea where to start. There's no way we can tackle racism in 30 minutes. But then I thought, what would have helped me respond more appropriately Uh, when I was confronted with racism, because my responses were not always appropriate. And so that's why I ended up sharing. And so I want to draw on some of that for you all today uh, and look at some old stories to look at how we do the work before the work, specifically if you are a white person. Um, When we're confronted with the realities of our prejudice and racism, how do we respond appropriately? Oftentimes that moment comes with this like sense of shock, Uh, I remember for me the first time that I sort of like had my eyes opened to prejudice and racism was when I was in seminary and I was taking this class called Race in the New Testament and we were looking at uh, what's called critical race theory, which is looking at race from a systematic historical perspective, looking at it with some nuance. And one of the first things we did was participate in this online research study. Uh, This research study was put together by some researchers out of various universities, and they essentially created a first-person shooter game. Sounds kind of violent, uh, but it's useful, so stay with me. And what happened is um, I was the, the shooter, and pictures of people would pop up. Maybe you've heard of this study before. Sometimes those people would have a gun. Sometimes they'd have nothing. Sometimes they'd have an object that looked like a gun, and then they would vary their races as well. So this is uh, kind of a classic situation that police officers find themselves in. So my job was to only shoot people with a gun, not shoot anyone else. So I play the game, pretty terrible at it, don't have a long history with guns, shocking. 
Uh, and then they show you your stats at the end. And they show you how quickly you shoot people broken down by race and ethnicity. And to my shock, what I found was I shot people of color more quickly and more wrongly, wrong more often than I did white people. And so I thought that can't be right. That's a mistake. So I did the game again, slowed down, thought about it more. Results were exactly the same. Did it again and again. I think I literally did it like seven times and every time I was flipping racist. And so that sort of started this journey. And so as I was thinking about um, how to reflect on that and what stories to share, I thought about a story that I've talked about on this podcast before, and that is uh, an episode called The Time Jesus Was Prejudiced. And you can go back and listen to that, but long story short, Jesus calls this woman who's called a Canaanite woman, he calls her a dog. She, in my opinion, calls him out on him, shames him, and then he responds by saying, you have tremendous faith, that her calling out his prejudice was an act of faith. And so what I thought uh, as I was going to talk to these people about sort of this work before the work, I thought to myself, what formed Jesus before this? Now, obviously, we have a very limited scope of what happened to Jesus, uh, but at least in the text, this text is in Matthew and Luke, in the text, how, what shaped Jesus to the point where he responded this way to prejudice? Because that's how I would have loved to respond. But instead, I just went into this like ridiculous denial. And so I want to look back at these certain moments that I think played into Jesus's life, the sort of work before the work when he was confronted with his prejudice. Uh, and again, this is not, the Bible is not a perfect model for how to deal with racism by any means. Uh, but assuming that Jesus' response was a semi-appropriate response to prejudice, then let's look back and see how he got there. First thing, uh, when I was looking at this, these stories of Jesus, these ancient stories, and I was thinking about my own life as well, our sense of identity and Jesus' sense of identity, I think, has a lot to do with how we respond to prejudice and racism. There is this sort of pivotal moment, uh, at least in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 3. You probably are familiar with it if you have been in church or Bible circles uh, for a while. Jesus is getting baptized. And as he gets baptized, the heavens open up. Uh, there's this voice from the heavens that say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So there's this like sense of identity that Jesus has kind of been parted with. And you see throughout his life, at least the stories that are recorded in scripture, he will withdraw into the wilderness to go sort of recenter himself in that identity. And then that leads to teachings like in Matthew 6, where he says, hey, when you are going to pray or give money, do these sort of things that could potentially give you an outward sense of identity or religiosity or sort of the moral high ground, do those in secret. And these betray this sense that Jesus does not have an outward identity to defend to people. He has a, a deep sense that he is loved. And here's where this comes in with, with racism and prejudice. Oftentimes, for myself and a lot of other white folks who are confronted with, with the realities of racism and our own biases and prejudice, oftentimes we view that as an attack on our identity. You see, one of the reasons that I sort of responded so strongly when I was confronted with my own prejudice in the shooting game was I thought I was a good white person. See, my dad was a civil rights teacher. Uh, we went on vacations as a kid to the South doing these civil rights tours. 
I knew who Medgar Evers was. I knew who Emmett Till was. I lived in a relatively diverse area. Like I thought I had it down and I had this sense of identity that I was a good white person. I was in the know. I wasn't racist. And what we find out oftentimes is that when we're confronted with new realities, we get defensive and angry. But as sort of um, squishy as it sounds, if we realize that we are deeply loved at the core of our being, then we are able to actually explore the darkest parts of our being. You aren't trying to defend yourself then against the reality of racism. You can look at those parts both individually and collectively with some honesty. So I think identity has a lot to do with how Jesus responded. Next thing has a lot to do with proximity and empathy. If you've ever read the Gospels, any of them, uh, but in particular, at least in the case of today's episode, the book of Matthew, Jesus hangs out with people that uh, are different than him, that think different than him, that are considered outsiders. He puts himself in proximity to them and learns from them. Now, important caveat here. Oftentimes, and this surfaced recently in a, a political discourse, oftentimes white folks like myself tend to think that an appropriate response or the entirely appropriate response to racism is having black friends or having diverse friends. Now, that is a great thing to do. Absolutely put yourself in the lives and the proximity to other people who think differently than you, who have different experiences than you. But that in itself is not enough to respond appropriately to racism. We also have to put ourselves in a position to actually learn to be a safe person, a listening person. Jesus talks in Matthew 5 and in a lot of other places about actually loving your neighbor and your enemy. And if you actually have a nuanced understanding of what love means, it means to actually try to understand what they're going through. And even if you haven't experienced it yourself to say, I believe you. For me, uh, this came when I was in Indianapolis and I was taking part in these two-day anti-racism trainings uh, by a group called the People's Institute. If you're looking for anti-racism training, that's a fantastic one. There's another one called the uh, Racial Equity Institute, I believe. I'll put links for these in the show notes. And this was the first time that I was in a prolonged, diverse setting where we're having an honest conversation about racism. And people of different races and ethnicities began to be honest about their experience of what it was like to navigate a world where white was considered quote-unquote normal. And my first response was, that can't be true. I would have seen this. And it wasn't just my response. That was a lot of people's response, at least white folks in the room. And what became really apparent by the end of those two days is the appropriate response, the loving response, was to listen and then to say, I believe you, to move towards something closer to understanding or at least empathy. The last thing, we're thinking about the work before the work has to do with our, and I think Jesus's economic outlook, how he saw resources, because how we see resources will affect how we respond to racism. At a certain point, when you get in the conversation about racism, we have to talk about resources and wealth, and I'll get there in a second. But first, let's talk about, I think, how Jesus saw resources. This story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman where he's confronted with his own prejudice is flanked almost immediately by two very, very similar stories, stories you may have heard of. One was the feeding of the 5,000. The other was the feeding of the 4,000. And I think these stories are placed here for a very particular reason. They give away how Jesus saw the world. He saw it 
with a sense of abundance, that there are actually enough resources. These are stories where Jesus takes almost nothing, where it looks like there's not enough. And then he shows this group of followers that there actually is indeed enough for everyone to have plenty. Now, this is a common theme in scriptures, particularly the Hebrew scriptures, but it's usually seen as this sort of future reality. But what you find in Jesus is sort of recentering that understanding to say the world is like that now, so start acting like it. Now, if we have that understanding, if we share that understanding with Jesus, then our response to racism, I think, will be much more appropriate and much more holistic. Like I said just a few minutes ago, eventually, if we're having a deep enough conversation about racism, we have to talk about economic resources. Maybe you've heard these studies before, but the number one indicator of well-being in terms of education, health, happiness, mental health, the number one indicator of those things is wealth. You don't have to be wealthy, but there is a certain amount of wealth that allows the average person to thrive. If you look at statistics about wealth in the United States, the average wealth broken down by race is drastically disparate. And it's not getting better, it's actually getting worse. And a lot of that has to do with decisions that were made long before I was born and long before many of us were born. Let me give you an example of this. My grandparents. My grandparents were amazing, wonderful, hardworking people. In a lot of ways, they were the American dream. I, just last week, got an inheritance check from my grandparents' estate. Now, it's not a ton of money. They were not, like, uber wealthy, but uh, it's enough to give me a leg up. And they did a lot of other things in my life to give me a leg up. They helped pay for college. They helped finance a car. They helped out when we couldn't make rent. All sorts of really wonderful things. Now, my grandparents, if you look at their story, uh, would be the closest thing that you could sort of imagine as, quote-unquote, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which is a loaded term. They were dirt poor in the Ozarks. They were farmers on land that was never going to make any money. And what happened was over time, they got different jobs, they saved, they worked really hard, they were really good with money, and they created a life that benefited their family. And I'm really grateful for it. But here's the thing. A person of color could not have had access to the same things that they did. And here's what I mean. One of the ways they broke out of poverty was my grandfather became an electrician. He joined an electrical union. And at that time, a good chunk of unions would not allow a person of color to join them. That union gave him a pension, a steady income, and even life insurance just a few years ago when he passed away. My grandmother pursued higher education. She became a teacher. She got into schools that would not have allowed people of color into those programs at the time. And then she got jobs in districts that definitely would not have hired a person of color. Those jobs allowed her to save, to build wealth, to be frugal, to work hard. And then last, they purchased a home. Not a huge home, but a home that increased in value over time. A person of color, at the time they bought their home, would not have been allowed to purchase that home in that neighborhood and likely would not have been approved for a mortgage in the same way they were. Now, these are things that happened a long time ago, but the economic benefit literally just hit me last week. The analogy is often used of a monopoly board to help us kind of wrap our head around this. If you think about racism and the decisions that were made based on race in the past and how they affect the world today, think about it as if you were playing a game of Monopoly with a handful of folks. 
and everyone else got to start playing, but you had to wait until everyone got around the board three times before you could get in the game. Now, technically, yeah, you would have the same opportunities as them when you got in the game, but you wouldn't have the same wealth. You wouldn't be able to make the same choices realistically. You would be drastically far behind. And so when we get to this point in the conversation about racism, sharing Jesus's worldview of abundance is essential. Because if we're going to respond appropriately to racism, then we have to do some accounting and we're going to have to hold our resources loosely. Now, I don't have an easy answer for what that looks like, but I think it starts with not being defensive about how we hold those resources. And that those resources will probably come into play when it comes to reconciling the historical wrongs of racism in the United States. And so I hope that we can hold our resources a little more loosely and actually trust in these old stories that the world is abundant, that there is enough. I hope that you can listen and put yourself in a position to learn and you can also know at your core that you are deeply loved so then you can look around in the dark places of your world. So hopefully that is at least a little bit of the work before the work. Until next time, peace, friends. Peace, friends.